7, verse 2. That's our scripture for the day. And it's real short, but potent. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And then the New Testament speaks on this topic a lot. And I chose Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. These are Jesus' words. He says, so anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the Greek word for humble translates as low or lowly. So when we see the word humble in scripture or humility, think low or lowly, grounded. And Richard Rohr says, Jesus, who taught the strength of humility, is being lowly, close to the ground from which we and all things come. The lowest, says Jesus, are the greatest. And this is something that may be foreign to us to think about coming low, being grounded, or even really wanting that. Uh, There are three um, myths about humility that I want to start off today. Today, our topic is humility. And there's three myths I want to talk about um, that I think humility is often misunderstood. And uh, I read a sermon recently by uh, a guy named Friar Jared Johnson, and he came up with these. So myth number one. The humble soul lacks confidence. The most humble people out there are some of the most confident. And sometimes some of the most prideful people are the most insecure. He said humble souls know their value is dependent on God and know what to value. Things lasting, not passing. They value the Lord over anything else. And I think that last point he made is short but powerful. And it's something I constantly check in myself. Um... And in others, Um, if I value the Lord over everything else, I should be a man, a husband, a father, a friend, a Christian who receives coaching and criticism and alternative perspectives to life with peace. If I have a spirit of defensiveness or insecurity, it's a telltale sign that I'm struggling with humility, that I'm valuing something else over God. Myth number two, he says, humility is not attractive. True humility is attractive. It's the humble person who listens and cares about others as opposed to the one focused on their self and trying to look good. And I, I would take it to an even another, another level. I would say humility is the most attractive quality in a human being. When I sense it in someone, I don't want to leave their presence because it's such a rare find it's to, to, to sit in, in the presence of someone who just exudes the humility of Christ. I, I'm in awe of that. And then myth number three, humble people want to be recognized as humble. Father Johnson explained that wanting to look humble is false humility. In reality, they, he said they simply want to do something because it is right, not because they're looking for praise. This is why I'm wary of uh, self-promotion and the, uh, you know, the, the social media humble brag that people love to do. I'm like, hmm, I, I sniff I sniff something other than humility in, in, in that. And how humility is a, a misunderstood topic, but it's something that is a, a true quality of Jesus Christ. How do we acquire that? Like what's, what's the path for receiving humility? Because it is received. It is not something you take. Uh, there, in, in the kingdom of Christ, There's nothing earned. Things are given uh, based on us following him. So how do we acquire this? It's an extremely important question because 
um, the answer is challenging for us as American Christians because we have been so corrupted by consumerism. It is pervasive. Something we need to understand is that humility doesn't come from a level of knowing more. Humility comes from a level of obeying more. Submitting to authority. So you could use the word submission when it comes to obeying. Submitting to authority to someone bigger than us, that's why it's tough because pride gets in our way of doing that. But submitting to authority, obeying Christ, like actively doing that, that is the key to humility. That's when we begin to receive it. And we want to know more, especially in, in our area. Like we, we want education, we want to learn, we want to grow. There's nothing wrong with knowing more, but there's a problem if knowing doesn't lead to obeying. Dr. James Cone, who, just, who wrote The Cross and the Lynching Tree, he recently just passed away, he's a legend, says it doesn't matter what your theology is unless you're doing something with it. You have to live it out. Humility is received through obeying Jesus. And when that happens, one of the truly strange paradoxes of Christianity happens. There is both brokenness, failure, and lowness combined with peace, joy, and abundant blessing. And they both happen seemingly at the same time. Henry Nouwen calls it the cup of life. And he wrote that the cup of life is filled with both joy and suffering. He says when you drink from the cup of life, you will drink joy and suffering. And he wrote, we fulfill our lives by emptying them. It's strange to think that way. And then Dallas Willard says there are two primary objectives to um, receiving humility. Number one, he says, the f- okay, Dallas has this way of packing in. I'm going to read this slow. He just, it, it packs a heavy punch. The first objective is to bring apprentices to the point where they dearly love and constantly delight in that heavenly father made real to earth in Jesus and are quite certain there is no catch, no limit to the goodness of his intentions or to his power to carry them out. And my friends, in the age of postmodernism and humanism, both of which have uh, infected Christianity, number like the first objective he talks about here is no joke. It's a real struggle to, to want to be the king or the queen of your own life, to make your own decisions and settle on those. At most, we will extend our trust to those people who are like-minded and share the same feelings and worldviews and maybe politics um, on, or viewpoints on humanity. That, that is the most people are willing to extend, it seems like. Um, that's tribalism. And it's something we have to be really aware of. And it is all over Christianity, uh, tribalism, where people just separate themselves based on, I want to be around people who just think, think like me and look like me and do like me and believe like me. Willard notes, our mind on its own is an extremely feeble instrument whose power over life we constantly tend to exaggerate. Trusting, having faith that God is good and just shares his love limitlessly, is free of manipulation, that's hard to believe because every person that seems to have power right now is full of corruption. I I think you know who I'm talking about. Don't confuse Christ with those people. 
All right, you know, just you look at like what just happened in the Catholic Church this last week. It seems like there's something every week where we see someone in power says something terrible or has done something terrible and it comes to light. Don't confuse that corruption with Christ. Because we have, when, the more we see that, the more we're going to want to question authority, which is fine because that's, I, I tend to do that. But with Jesus, Willard talks about it. At some point, we have to realize there's no catch. There's no failure. There is no limit to his love. There's no corruption. So don't confuse Christ. He stands apart. He is a completely separate and different king than anybody we know that's in power. They are in darkness. He is in light, which is a quote from John. And John uh, was one of the original 12 disciples. He was the youngest disciple. He was Jesus's closest friend. He was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. He was the only disciple to die of old age. So he was a man rotting in prison, in a Roman prison, pinning these letters, a man who had seen his Lord, his closest friends, and his co-leaders all murdered. And he's all alone now. And he's just wasting away in prison. You think about that context, and I, I imagine him being bent and broken by life, arthritic, unbearably lonely. Uh, after all of his friends were gone, he's locked in a prison. I feel like if it would be really easy for John to be cynical and jaded, to look at anything, uh, including God, uh, who has power, with um, you know, a jaded viewpoint and a hopeless viewpoint about the future of the world. But that's not how he viewed it. In prison, he wrote one of... Uh, his most powerful words of hope. He penned the very powerfully symbolic book, Revelation, where he talks about, uh, in Revelation, he mentions that there will come a time where there will, there will be no more death, no more dying, no more tears, and no more pain. He foresaw heaven coming to earth. And in his last years, he wrote, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. A man who had seen probably more than most of us have, and he still trusted in the goodness and in the power and the authority of God, and he would submit to that even when he didn't understand. Because in Christ, there is no catch, there's no manipulation, there's no bait and switch, there's no hoops to jump through. John delighted in Christ. He worshiped him, and humility came to him because of that. The second primary objective that Willard talks about is another, again, he likes run-on sentences. All right, so there's two sentences in this one, but it's, it's potent. The second primary objective of a curriculum for Christ-likeness is to remove our automatic responses against the kingdom of God, to free the apprentices, that's us, of domination, of enslavement, to their old habitual patterns of thought, feelings, and action. <clears throat> These are the automatic responses that are ground into the social self during its long life outside the kingdom among us. So then we have to ask ourselves, personally, what am I enslaved to? What are my habitual patterns of thought, feelings, and actions that prevent the kingdom from moving into us, moving into me? And I think number two, this objective that Willard talks about is, again, a a major struggle um, because we aren't, I think a lot of times we aren't self-aware enough to know what we are enslaved to. Like what are our socially formed or biological, biologically formed ingrown habits and actions and thoughts and feelings. 
So I'll give a few examples because honestly, I think we lack self-awareness. One thing to consider is spiritual consumerism. We are not, none of us are um, free of that. We have to be aware of this. If you're craving more, like more study, more depth, more newness, the answer you're you're craving is not knowing more. It's not. It's allowing what you already know to fuel faithful action. If you ever get to the point where you're craving more, I need more, I need more, I need more, because you're not letting it empty out. We are incarnate beings in our very nature, and we live from our bodies. We have to let the truth of Christ move from our mind into our limbs, into our fingers, into our toes. It has to empty itself for fulfillment and for humility to occur. Another automatic response of enslavement uh, that's prevalent right now is to throw yourself into something other than the kingdom. All right, it's to distract yourself. And right now, an example of this, I mean, there's examples everywhere. I mean, we could say Netflix. I've used that a lot. Another example that is prevalent, uh, this is happening in politics right now. Because of the terrible leadership that's currently in place, people are throwing themselves into progressivism with such desperation that they have forgotten or dismissed the true king. There's, there, there's a, a hard, people are having a hard time seeing hope right now, currently, and then What's after this? What's the future look like? But we have a king, and he has not left the throne, and we can find hope in that. If John can sit in a Roman prison, rotting away, and know, I still see heaven coming to earth, we can do the same in our circumstances. We cannot become enslaved to some political um, movement that is other than the politics of Jesus. If John can write those words of hope, we can. We can find that. Um, And then finally, I think another automatic response for us is to throw ourselves into our job or career. All right, because that that is where we we can find satisfaction. Uh, We can find hope. But we start to spend more physical and mental energy in something that may not uh, lead to us obeying Christ and responding to him. The American dream can be very seductive for all of us. I have to be really aware of that right now. We're, we're thinking about buying a house next year. We're planning on buying a house next year. And you start to see, like, what, what, you're, what you can get or where you can buy. And you start, I mean, the American dream, it's like, we just start moving in quick. And you have to be aware of, like, okay, what, where's God calling us? Every decision is related to him. We've got to delight and trust in the lordship of Christ and eliminate our automatic responses that inhibit Christ-like humility from growing in us. And to close up, I want to give one point, one idea to consider that's a little bit more specific than what Willard gave. If you want humility, if you want a step to take, a program, a movement to consider, consider something that has been bugging me for six months personally, something that I have individually and personally been very convicted of that God has made abundantly clear to me. And I'll I'll, I'll tell it in the form of a question. Are most of my relationships, my time, my love, my energy with people of power and privilege, or are they with the poor? And the answer to that question is very convicting for me. Who did Jesus spend most of his time and energy with? People in power or the poor? My guess is all of us have this out of proportion. I don't know you. I don't know all your stories. I know it's out of proportion for me. But it is abundantly clear in the New Testament that humility comes by being with and for the poor. And it's important to note, Nouwen makes a great point here. He says, we need to focus on the poor, not primarily because the poor need us. 
but because we need the poor. Bless, he, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He does not say, blessed are those who care for the poor. You see, the poor are holding a blessing for us that we need to receive. This is humility. We need to consider the implications this would have on our humility, both as individuals and as a community in our church. Let's pray.